My name is Selena Tusitala Marsh, and I am having a korero with the amazing uh, Anthony Joseph. And we'll be talking about sonnets for Albert and lots of weird and unusual things. Thank you, <laughs> okay. uh, Anthony, for joining us. Um, I've been asked to get you to double check that your cell phones are off. I've been also asked to encourage you to share stuff on social media, which I never do. And, um, you know, it's just so wonderful to be here in person and to be celebrating art. And I'd like to give a big thank you to the British Council for their support of your visit, um, Anthony. And so we're just going to have an open, intimate conversation, which I've spent hours preparing for. And, and then we'll have um, an opportunity for you to ask questions at the end. So there is a standing mic, and um, when I signal to you, you're most welcome to go and form a queue and ask. Of course, if you don't ask questions, I've got hours worth of questions for us to listen to. Um, and at the end of the session, um, Anthony will be uh, at the author's table book signing. Mm -hmm. All right, so. You were born, I'm going to tell you all about you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You were born in the port of Spain, Trinidad, Tobago. Yeah. You are listed in Wikipedia as a poet, novelist, musician, and lastly, academic, which I just love. Um, it says your nationality is British Trin Trinidadian, and we're going to talk about that because that's a post-colonial hook for me. Mm -hmm. And you were raised by your grandparents, you moved to the UK when you were 23 years old and have lived in the UK since 1989, yep. which makes you old, older than me, <laughs> much older than me. <laughs> you have eight okay. books published. I have what? Eight, eight books yeah, published. Right. Um, two notable ones, mm -hmm. Kitsch, a fictional biography of a Calypso icon, which was published in 2018. And of course, this, magical book, Sonnets for Albert, published in 2022, and it, it won this little award, T.S. Eliot Prize, some of you may have heard of it. Um, your debut novel was, the Af it was titled The African Origins of UFOs in 2006, um, which was, quote, described as, and sure, you're not an academic, Afrocentric noir, a poetic work of metafiction, mythology, and Afrofuturism. So, um, when I told my three Samoan sons mm -hmm. that I was interviewing uh, Anthony Joseph, they, their jaws dropped. Really? You are the first man to ever make my sons fight for an Auckland Writers' Festival comp ticket. Oh, wow. And I was thinking, that's the power of an inspirational black man mm -hmm. for my sons. Yeah. Um, they wanted to know if they could get your autograph and to get selfies with you. Yeah. Wow. And I just think that deserves an applause. Wow. <laughs> However, when I showed them the program booklet, they said, Ma, that's not 
Anthony Joshua, black heavyweight <laughs> champion of the world. We actually don't know who that guy is, so enjoy yourself tonight. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, I'll get you. <laughs> um, so welcome, Anthony, yeah. Joseph, Sans, my three sons. Yeah. Nobody's here except for my partner, Pala, sitting in the audience. <laughs> um, it's really wonderful to have you mm. here. It's a real blessing for me to be here um, because I live on Waiheke Island and we had four ferries cancelled, but also uh, just to be in conversation with you, and I would love it if you activated the space mm -hmm. with one of your poems. Okay, so I'm going to read a poem we'll probably speak about in a bit. So this is a, a poem that appears early on in the book. It's called Jogi Road, and just to give a bit of background, um, my mum and dad... Um, had me when they were really young. My mom was like 18, my dad was probably 20, 21. Um, and then they had a very fractious, difficult relationship and they broke up and got back together and broke up and etc., etc. But I don't have any memories of them together. I didn't grow up with any of them. I grew up with my grandparents. So the only glimpse of a memory that I have of them together is in this poem and it's, it was a pretty violent um, memory but it's, it's the only one I have. So the poem is about that, but it's also about the fallibility of memory, the fact that sometimes you think you remember something or a place in a particular way, and it turns out to be something else when you research it. Uh, Jogi Road. From life, from love, in shame. The red sawmill on Jogi Road with cedar grain in its fibrous air red, the old train track and the bridge where my mother's rage was bruising the dark. Her fingernails ripped at my father's shirt, his face. This is blood. The way he looks away, then down with open palms in resignation. But memory has a curious sting. The red sawmill was not on Jogi Road, but on Silver Mill. And in the savannah, there were five salmon trees which cried when cut, not six. My father held me over his shoulder that night. No, I was looking up from the road. Anthony, is that... Was that a hard poem to write? Um, yes, yes. A lot of them were, I mean, the whole book, you know, was, was quite emotionally difficult. And even reading it, I have, to, so I have to enter into a particular space to read it, a space where it's more, where I'm, I'm reading the work and I'm not living the work. That's a different thing. So, yeah, um, yeah, it was difficult because, you know, um, it's, as I said, it's the only memory I have of them together. It's not a great memory. Um, I had, a, you know, difficult relationships with both of them, with my mom and dad, um, both sort of unrequited, not unrequited, but unconcluded relationships, you know. So, yeah, it's difficult, but important to do, you know. Yeah, yeah. T tell us about that moment when um, um, you were sent to live with your grandparents. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so... 
what happened, I mean, you know, is my mom and dad, as I said, they got, they got they're really young and they had me. Um, and then they broke up. Somewhere after they got together, they had me. A few months after, actually, they got married. Then they had me. Then they broke up. And my mom went to live with her father. And within the space of a year or whatever, she got pregnant again. My father somehow found a way back into her life. And she got pregnant again. And her father, it was a really weird story. Her father said, um, you know, you're like 19. You, you've got one child. You're pregnant again. You've got you to get rid of one of these children if you want to stay in this house. You can't have these two kids here. You have no husband. Your husband is a waste of time, etc." Um, she said, he said, give, one, give the older one to, his, to the, the father's mom, my grandmother. And that's how I, you know, I ended up having to be taken to my grandmother. And I think that moment or that event is what made me a poet. I think that, that trauma forced me, I mean, I don't remember any of it, but apparently it was very, it was very traumatic and it forced me to be uh, someone that was very insular and very uh, private and constantly thinking about language and words and yeah, yeah. So that, that was an interesting experience. Um, and I lived with my grandparents and I was the only child in the house and they were people, they were older folks. So I had a lot of time and space and where we lived, there was a lot of beautiful land and nature and I was able to, to have that sort of idyllic childhood and nature and, and words, you know. Do you remember that first time putting a poem together when you were a kid? Yeah, yeah, I do, I do, absolutely. I remember it very clearly, actually. I was in school, I was actually, I started writing when I was about 11, 11, yeah, 11 going on 12. I was in sec it was my first year in secondary school, and I was, I was really interested in music. I loved music, I loved listening to the radio a lot, and I listened to a lot of pop music. And I started really paying attention to the lyrics of songs. And at some point in that year, when I was about 11, I decided I was going to write my own song. I was going to write a song lyric. And I started writing song lyrics. And it became an obsession. And I did it all through my teenage years, religiously every day. But I didn't know it was poetry. I, for me, it was just... I was writing music, I was writing songs, and, but that was my practice. That's how I, I became a, a poet. Mm. Who was one of the inspirational figures that helped you transition into being kind of a bedroom poet, home poet, to actually getting it out there in the public? Oh, gosh. Um, that's a story. That's a longer story. I think in those days when I was writing like that, I would never, I was never, I wasn't doing readings, I wasn't, I wasn't a poet. I was just a kid who liked writing. Um, and then I moved to England uh, in 1989 with the intention of being a musician. I wanted to be a rock star. <laughs> so I packed up, moved to England, and I wanted to be like Jimi Hendrix or Prince or something like that. Because that's what I understood uh, the work that the writing that I was doing, that's what I thought it would lead to, that I was going to be a lyricist in a band and a singer and stuff like that. So I pursued that for a couple of years. And then um, something really sort of magical happened. I had an epiphany one day. I was in London, and I had an old typewriter, and I had an injury on my foot, and I couldn't go out. So I was stuck in the house, and uh, I started sort of looking through the stuff that I had brought with me from Trinidad. 
And one of the things that I had brought was this cardboard box of all my notebooks and journals that I had written in when I was a teenager. And I started transcribing it, and I had the realization then that I was actually a poet. And um, I was very miserable because I realized I had been poor for the rest of my life. <laughs> but I was like, this is who you are. This is, yeah, you're actually a poet. Look at all of this stuff. So I started, that was the point where I became a poet understanding what that meant. And then I started doing readings and stuff like that, yeah. Yeah. you've been called a lot of names, I mean, a lot of things. Mm. One of them is... Um, I don't think... Is that back? Okay, so um, Anthony's been called a lot of things. I'm going to list them. Lovely. All good. Okay, so I've totally missed the timing of that gag joke which was, you've been called many things, <laughs> and I'm going to list them, um, because you're so steeped in poetry, creativity, um, music making as well. But I'm going to um, run through a list of them and would love for you to respond so that us, the average people, can understand what it actually means. But okay. um, you've been called the black avant-garde. Yeah. So what does that make you think of? Well, that came about because um, when I started publishing, writing and publishing work in the UK, it was 19, 1994 was when I started doing sort of publishing work and stuff. And then um, in 97, I had a really, the second collection of stories, the se second collection of poems was a very experimental collection. At that time, I was, I was reading a lot of postmodern poetry and I was reading a lot of uh, theory, a lot of Baldriard and um, Foucault and surrealism. I was really into surrealism. And there was no one else doing that. There was no, one, no other sort of black British poet doing that. So I started doing festivals and things. And one of the festivals I did, that's how they labeled me, you know, the leader of the black avant-garde, because there was no one else. So I was like, yeah, in the literal sense of the avant-garde, the person that goes first, you know. So that's what it was. But there was no avant-garde. It was just me. <laughs> Place to get him first. Okay. Well, you've also been called a surrealist poet. Yeah. Yeah. So I am a surrealist poet. Yeah. Formative. Yeah. Poetry. No, absolutely. I'm absolutely a surrealist poet. How that, that for me, that, the way I understand that is, it, you know, I, since I've been writing for so long, a long time, since I was 11, by the time I started sort of uh, publishing work and really getting into the, the, the profession of being a poet, I had a particular voice, I had a particular, I understood what my voice was, and I understood what I wanted to do as a poet, and the things that excited me, the things that excited me in my own work were what I called um, the, the gaps between language, the slippages, the, the places where you lost control, or you, you try to express something and it came out, it felt like it was a tumbling onto the page rather than a considered crafting and crafting. The times when I just accidentally wrote something or stumbled upon a phrase, for me, 
they were the real poetry for me. So I started focusing on that and, and those moments and those, those phrases. Um, and then I realized, I met someone, I met this, a, a friend of mine, a guy in London who was a Canadian writer who introduced me to Andre Breton and surrealist writers. And I realized that uh, I was actually searching for a gap in language, the unconscious. I was searching my unconscious for those times where language, uh, where something new was happening with language. You know what I mean? And I, that I was a surrealist poet. That was what I was trying to do. So I kind of immersed myself in surrealism at that point and accepted that that's what I was. And also coming from Trinidad, you know, I come from a place that is a, a surreal, very surreal, strange place. It's a place where you feel like everything is happening at the same time. And we have Carnival, which is the, probably the, the greatest expression of surrealism that you could find anywhere in the world. It's, you know, so growing up with that sort of aesthetic and that folklore, it was easy to understand that I was a surrealist. But you know, Breton uh, didn't invent surrealism. He found a name for it, but he didn't invent it. It was like, you know, uh, surrealism had existed in African art and in Egyptian art and in Polynesian art forever, since the beginning of time, the ideas behind surrealism. So I kind of fit into that tradition um, rather than the Breton, you know, French style, let's say. <laughs> and Sonnets for Albert is not a surrealist no. collection, is it? It's not. There are glimpses of it. There are elements of it in there. There's a couple of poems that are definitely in that mode, in that surrealist mode. Mm. Um, yeah, but it's not, no, it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's a surrealist work, no, absolutely not. Mm. All right. You've also been called a language poet kind of overlaps with what you've been saying as well. Yeah, I think people started saying that after um, a collection that I did called Rubber Orchestras, which was a really strange book. I think it's most difficult, uh, difficult for readers to get into it because it was, uh, I, I invented a surrealist technique and I wrote a hundred poems using this technique. And the technique is, I'm not gonna tell you guys. I'm not gonna tell you. It's a secret. I've never told anyone how I, how I, how I wrote that. Someone book. can ask that question. I'll totally give the mic to you. <laughs> no, it was a particular technique. It was like a culmination of studying surrealism. And it, it was, it, it, let's just say it's a, it's a book where, uh, the idea of rubber orchestras was that the, the text was becoming itself as you were reading it, and that there were, you, you couldn't come to it with any sort of preconceived notion of what it was. It was happening, it was dynamic. It was the page. I wanted the, the poems to have dynamic movement within them as you were reading them. So it, the, the poems force your brain to make really strange leaps. They force you to read in a really different way where you make long leaps between ideas and images and it feels like your brain is being reduced to rubber. So that's, yeah, that was a strange book. And you've got an album with the same title, do you not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the relationship between the book and the album, if there is one? Um, I went through a phase where I was, where from my first novel, African Origins of UFOs, and then um, Rubber Orchestras, and I think there was another one after that. Um, Birdhead Son, yeah. I think there, was, there were those three books that coincided with albums 
and I called them the same name because I was using a lot of the lyrics from the books in the album. So they were, they were a pair, they were like that, that trio of, of books have albums associated with them, yeah. Yeah, that's what happened. That leads on quite beautifully to another thing you've been called, which is a jazz poet, like you are now on my Spotify list. I'm oh. one of your one million downloaders, um, particularly Swing Praxis. Oh, yeah. That is very cool. I think okay. I'll use that in my classroom. Okay. Yeah, okay. talk okay. about aesthetics. Okay. okay. Yes, um, a jazz poet, I don't know. That feels really, for me, that, that's always felt really old school and really archaic, like, you know, these guys with turtleneck sweaters and cigars reading in, like, jazz, smoky jazz clubs. It's not, it's not like that. I think, um, I think when I started recording and started doing music, I think journalists and critics had a really hard time understanding what I was doing because it was Caribbean, but it was quite funky and it was quite punky and it was quite psychedelic, and it was quite blues. It was a lot of stuff going on in the music. A lot of it was like free jazz as well, so people were very confused. And the only sort of um, touchstones that they could associate it with were people like um, Gil Scott Heron, uh, The Last Poets, and because I was using real musicians, I've, I've always used real you know, musicians, sax players, horn sections, they associated it with jazz because the musicians that I was working with were jazz musicians. But you know, I wouldn't say I'm a, I'm a jazz poet. I mean, what is that? You know. Yeah, I mean, jazz is an influence, but I'm not a jazz poet. I'm a, I'm a poet that is influenced by jazz. It's a different thing. Yeah. Well, you're definitely the last thing, which is a Black Caribbean poet. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. <laughs> yeah. No, that is. Yeah, that is that is that is what I am. Um, I, I am a Caribbean poet because I spent my formative years in the Caribbean. I gained an understanding, I gained consciousness in the Caribbean and an understanding of who I was as a human being and as a poet in the Caribbean. And the, the sort of language and the imagery that I draw on is, is like 80% Caribbean, you know? So yeah, I'm absolutely a Caribbean, a Caribbean poet and in a very, um, it's a political stance as well. I think it's important to assert Caribbeanness, and you know, uh, you know, this is why the, it's interesting that the Wikipedia says I'm a British Trinidadian poet. I consider myself I'm, I'm a Trinidadian poet that lives in Britain. It's a different thing, but you know. Um, so yeah, it's important for Caribbean poets to say that they are Trinidadian poets, Caribbean poets. I think that's important, you know. Totally infuses everything that you do because um, one of the ways sonnets for Albert has been described is Calypso sonnet. Yeah. Can you explain to us what that means? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, um, when I started writing this collection, I started writing it in very strict form, classical sonnet form. <clears throat> Because for many years I've taught the sonnet, you know, and uh, when I came to it, I had a lot of respect for the form. So I was like, okay, I'm going to write a crown of sonnets um, for my father, which felt very apt. So I set off doing it in very strict form, you know, iambic pentameter, 14 lines, blah, blah, blah. blah. But then after a while, it was almost like my father's uh, voice was resistant. My father's spirit was resistant to that form, you know. Kemal Braithwaite, who's a Barbadian poet, says, uh, 
the hurricane does not roar in pentameter. And it's the, it was the same for me. My father's spirit and his memory wouldn't fit in 10 beats per line. It felt like it needed an extra two beats, you know, and that extra two beats made it a calypso rhythm. So I started experimenting with, you know, 12 beat per line, some, you know, but eventually I kind of just went with the, the melody and the flow of the Trinidadian Creole, and that is, that's calypso, that's, that's a calypso ethic, you know, the calypso aesthetic is, um, it's got a, we've got a particular rhythm in the Caribbean that is, is very distinctive. Um, it's hard to explain. I mean, you know, for instance, the pentameter, you know, I was doing a class yesterday, I was explaining that the iambic pentameter, ti-dum, 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 ti-dum. But a lot of my lines wanted to go ti-dum, dum-dum, ti-dum, dum-dum, ti-dum, dum-dum-dum. They wanted to shift and move a little bit, so that's what I did. And that's why they're, they're considered calypso sonnets. Will you read us another poem that yeah. demonstrates that really well? Um, yeah, okay. I will read. Not that there are poems in there that don't demonstrate it really well. They're oh, all really no. well written poems. Yeah. Is it a crown? Is it, are there 20 sonnets in the book? Yes, no, is it's it? not a crown of sonnets, no. You can see remnants of the crown. You know, a crown of sonnets is a very complex uh, arrangement where the last the last line of each poem becomes the first line of the next poem, and at the end, the last poem is made up of all the last lines that became, yeah, it's incredible. So you can see some of, you can see remnants of it here, but um, this is a poem called Tina, and this is in, it's in Trinidadian Creole, I guess we could say. It's a poem about my sister, my sister's relationship with my father. My sister was not my father's child, but they, were, they had a great relationship, they loved each other. Um, and yeah, Tina. Hear this one. The big man surveyed a house. He said, okay, all you will have to break down to build back that kitchen. While they're building, them pillars could support the bedroom. You and your daughter could stay in there. The living room need new flooring. Tiantec not connecting electric until you fix that roof. The wiring faulty, fire. You're talking good money. Materials, cement, labor. But Tina, you can't live like this with termite in ruins. He had left quite Santa Cruz to go to Five Rivers to see what could be done for Tina and Trish. Tina, not Albert's daughter, but Baptist, no Baptist, and she have his last name. She dies two years after he does. Serpent didn't possess her womb, was stomach cancer. And two weeks after, the house she suffered to save fell down. That's, that's really wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Mm. When you go back, when you went back to Trinidad, yeah. You know, after you'd been living in London for a few years, how was that experience for you, and how was it for your creative writing? Well, I, I have, there was never a period when I didn't go back to Trinidad. I've been going back, you know, I try to go back every couple of years. Um, and I, I was just there a few weeks ago. Um, what I find... You, you picked up the big 
prize, didn't you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I won a, a prize. Um. <laughs> Could you tell us what the prize was, please? Oh, um, there's a literature festival in Trinidad, which is the biggest one in the Caribbean. It's called the OCM Bocas Prize, and I won the OCM Bocas Prize for Caribbean literature poetry for this book, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting, you know, because what happens when you are a Caribbean person and you live in the UK, or you from anywhere, actually, and you live in another country, you hold on to the thing that makes you who you are. So you become more Trinidadian the longer you stay away from Trinidad. So I've become more Trinidadian in my language, in, my, in, my, in the way that I work with language, in my aesthetic on the page, and the, the things that I write about. It's because I guess I'm trying to hold on to something, my identity, you know. Um, but when I go to Trinidad now, I realize that the thing that I'm holding on to um, doesn't exist anymore. It is, Trinidad has moved on without me. It's become its own thing. It's changing. So while I can see evidence of who I was when I was there, I can see little fragments of myself. It's a new, it's a new animal. It's a new thing that I have to try to you know, reconfigure and try to understand. And two weeks is never enough. So, it's, yeah, it's, I call it a, a floating island. It's an island that floats in my memory. It floats. It doesn't really exist. The Trinidad that I, I write about a lot, yeah, it, it exists to me in my memory, but when I'm there, people are doing a different thing. They're in a di language has moved on, the community and environment has moved on. It's, it's different, yeah. Well, part of the act of writing is making something solid that is ephemeral mm. or that thing that is almost out of touch. And, yeah. um, and you've said that this is what this book is, is about mm. or for in terms of honouring and remembering and just stating or bringing to the world who your father was. How is that for you now to have written it and not just written it and published it, but have it acknowledged by one of the biggest poetry prizes in the world, Western mm. world, I should say. Yeah. Um, I mean, what, I'm trying to work out what the question is in that. I mean, how is it? It's great, is <laughs> the answer. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't, you know, when I was doing it, when I was working on it, I didn't think you don't think of prizes and accolades when you're working on a thing. You're just trying to make it good. You're just trying to make, write good poetry. Um, and that's what I was trying to do. Um, in a lot of ways, though, um, it's, oh, I don't know. Sometimes, that's the beauty of being a, a, a poet. Sometimes you don't know your own work. Sometimes your work is activated by your reader, you know. So while I might think, oh, it's an okay book, you know, I could probably do better, I can probably write some better poems. The audience, the people that are reading it, are tapping into it and going, wow, I had that same experience, or I know what you mean. You know, it's the power of the word, it spreads out beyond, you know, what you think it is. It affects people, it affects, it affects everyone in a different way, you know. And that is beautiful, and this, for some reason, this book has had a lot of impact on people on an emotional level. 
because everyone knows what it's like. Fathers are difficult creatures, you know. Fathers are difficult beings. You know, I'm a father, I'm a difficult being to my daughters. Um, it's a difficult space, and a Caribbean father is a difficult space because we're dealing with post-colonialism, we're dealing with the effects of slavery, we're dealing with a certain degree of emasculation and this sort of reinforcement of masculinity, which exhibits itself in promiscuity. And, you know, my dad had like 12 kids, you know, it exhibits itself in that sort of behavior. So you're wrestling with a lot of political and, you know, difficult factors. Yeah. Well, then you fix it in time, though. You've got, you know, your real photos, the, the, the few photos you do have of your father, um, and the cover demonstrates exactly what you've mm. said, all those, all those issues. So yeah. um, could you describe the cover for our audience and... <laughs> and you know, how yeah. you came to that selection? Um, I didn't select that photo for the cover. That was done by the art director of uh, Bloomsbury. What I did was uh, I sent them a load of photos. I sent them all the photos I had, and I said I want these included in the book. And the art, the, the art, the designer chose that one. It's a photo that I took in Trinidad of my father in uh, mid-2000s somewhere. There's a beach in Trinidad called Maracas Beach, which is very beautiful, and I was there. I was there for uh, probably a, a literature festival or something, and I took him to the beach, and there's um, my aunt. You can see her arm there. She passed away last year. That was his sister. Uh, and then my stepmother is, is sitting next to her. Um, but the way my father stands is like a really sort of, that's him, that's his sort of charismatic, you know, one leg out, uh, both hands behind his back holding a bottle of beer, looking out to the sea, you know, stylish, you know, that was him, you know, while the woman behind is sort of looking up at him. Um, yeah, that kind of cap, so I think that's why the, the designer chose that, because they probably read the poems and realized, yeah, this is the perfect image. Yeah, I think it's important that we don't see his face because we've, you know, we're, we're coming mm. to your father from your poetic lens and um, it's often a really difficult lens to see through. Mm. The way that we often make up the past so it fits better into our, mm. you know, we all want to be loved and yeah. we all want to belong and so the line that you read in, in um, Jorgie Road, you know, of thinking, oh, I'm over my father's shoulder, but actually, no, I'm separate from him. That's, yeah. you know, does it, like, it's such a personal, private um, journey that everyone is sharing with you. Mm. And do you feel like you've healed or, or there's healing to be, still, still to be felt or... Mm. Was, is this a stepping stone towards that, or? No, I don't look at it like that. I, I, I never look at writing as therapy, and I don't think, I, I don't think writers should. I think th therapy is something that is personal to you and singular to your experience, whereas being a poet is about communicating with as much people as you can. So you're always writing, you know, but the, the sort of ironic thing, or the, 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 the twist, the secret to it is that 
the more personal you are in your work, the more intimate and, and personal is the more people that you reach. You know, because the personal is the universal. And that is what a lot of poets, a lot of beginning poets don't realize, and they try to write in this big way for everybody. No, the best way to do it is to write about your real, the things that you want to hide, your secrets, the things that are so private you could never touch, you know, the, the image of my mom and, and, and my dad having a fight in the street, you know. It's a difficult thing to write about, but it's the truth, and it's, it's intimate, and it's personal, and people respond to that. They're like, oh, wow. They mightn't have the same experience, but they feel it. They feel that it's real, and it's, you know, that's, that's the secret. Yeah, so, yeah, that's what I do. It's, the personal is the universal, you know? Yeah. That's what I tell students. I tell my students that um, the things that you're trying to hide, if I ask you to write about a friend that you've lost touch with, which is an exercise I give a lot. I say, write, about, write a paragraph about, a, write a story about a friend that you met that you've lost touch with now. I want to know how you met them, why they were special, how you lost touch, how you feel about them now. And a lot of times people write around it and they write stories and stuff. And I'm like, no, tell me exactly, tell me the, the truth, what happened, you know. The things that you're trying to hide are the things that make great literature, you know. Um, yeah. So what's the worst piece of advice you've received about <laughs> poetry writing? The worst? Yeah, the worst. The worst bit of advice that I've received. That is a, a good question. Um, I, I asked because I was advised not to rhyme so much. Oh. And then I, I yeah. won a big award because ah. I ignored it. Yeah. yeah. No, I have to think about that. I think... Um, I guess it would be something like don't write for, the, you know, when you write, um, don't think about the stage. So, sort of don't think about the performance of the poem, think about how the poem works on the page. And I found that actually it works a lot better when you imagine the sound and the performance of the poem, how the poem is going to exist beyond the page. So, yeah. Yeah, I haven't really received a lot of bad, um, bad advice. I've given terrible advice, I'm sure. <laughs> but, yeah. I think that's why, you know, with our Pacifica youth, indigenous youth, spoken word just kind of skyrocketed yeah. about five to seven yeah. years ago. It's yeah. the embodied musicality of storytelling yeah. that um, we so resonate with and makes it really accessible. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, poetry is, is, is music, is spoken music, you know. Mm. It's meant to be read and performed. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Would you read another poem? Yeah. Um, what would you like? Let me see. How about your most painful poem? Oh, <laughs> um, well, yeah. okay. Then I want to ask where your mom is. Yeah. No, poetry, I, poetic oeuvre. Yeah, I had a feeling you were gonna you're gonna ask that. Please don't say she's symbolically in there because when my sons say that to me, it doesn't go around. It doesn't kind of land very well with me. Okay, um, <laughs> this is the last poem in the book. Actually, the the way the the poems were ordered, 
they were, the poems were ordered in the book exactly the way they came to me, exactly in the order they were written. So I started by writing about leaving London and going to my father's funeral, and then I went through a load of memories about him, and then I end at his funeral. The tumuli in Santa Cruz. So does anyone know what tumuli is? Tumuli? Tumuli is the, the mound of dirt that forms over a grave. That's, it's called a tumuli. Yeah. Uh, I think it's singular, it's tumulus, but then plural becomes tumuli. Uh, the tumuli in Santa Cruz. Fire for you and the mothers of the church lit candles upon your breastbone. Fire was lit even in the hole to purify the earth to receive you. They poured flame from brass goblets of croton and pink exora and swung a chant to kill death. O oh, death, draw out your sword. Your body lay in the sweet brown. The red church on the hill grew nervous in the noon. The red hearse purred in the sloping yard. Perfume sang from the bosoms of ants and far cousins. Look out over mountains. Look out where rayo trees are planted on tumuli of bones like ladders for spirits to cross into heaven. Oh, fold me in and fly me around the valley. We shall all be rooted in this well of ours eventually. And on the facing page is a beautiful photo of your father looking out a window. Oh, yeah. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that was, oh, great. That was um, about, ooh, Six months before my father died, I was in Trinidad, um, and he was, actually, I can, re I can read, a, I can, I'll read a poem. I'll read a poem that explains it. Um, I went to visit him, and he had, for some reason, he left his wife, and he was living as a bachelor. And I was like, what the hell are you doing, man? He wasn't, he wasn't well. Um, and for some reason, he decided, he, you know, I'll, I'll read the poem. And that's what that, that image of, is me, that I took a photo of him just before I left. Um, and the poem is called El Socorro. Sorry. I just have to find the page, 44, 39. Yeah. El Socorro. In an April of Saturdays, I visit my father in El Socorro. He is clearly ill and living again as a bachelor. His philosophy, that if God gives him five more years, he wants those to be happy, has brought him here to a ground floor apartment on Jagroup Lane. Dust in the sun beams through both rooms. The furniture is old. Cardboard boxes of folded clothes. His tattered Bible and pillbox on the kitchen table. I take photos, saddened to see where my father has arrived in his seventh decade. Does my father know he is dying? 
When I drive him to the pharmacy, I photograph his hands as he flirts with the chemist's wife. What is it about his hands? His form is mine, his fingers. The Saturday after he dies, I cannot go when my stepmother asks me to help her clear his apartment. It's the poet's eye for detail, isn't it, that takes us completely there. Mm. My favorite photo in the whole collection reminds me of some of my Samoan uncles mm -hmm. and uh, older men, but it's this one here. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, I don't know why they included that. I was surprised, man. That's like my father cooking. But yeah, it's, it's not a great photo, but I don't know. There's, a lot of people like it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you've got the poem, The Chef, next yeah. to it. So could you read that one? Yeah, I'll read The Chef. The Chef, The Chef. What page? Page 54. So he's stirring. What, what has he in his pot? Have you got that in the poem? I have no idea. He's I holding up a lid, like stirring some, yeah, some spicy chicken in a pot yeah. in his kitchen. The Chef. He is in Mont Lambert in the brightness of midweek, and every moment or movement is lit by his precipitous mood. Each scene is his, he steals it. He is his mother's sugar dumpling, her youngest child. She loves him, sings to him over oceans for each return. She takes the chicken from the, fr from the fridge in its enamel bowl marinated with pimento, chardonnay, and garlic. And Albert taking over, saying, oh, how he can cook. He sears the chicken into brown sugar burning. He say, this is how they just do it in Tobago. And with flair and guile, he throws red rum into the stew. I see him tasting with a spoon, then moving away from the fuck-up pot with a smile. The, sm the smoke fades, but infiltrates a poem years later. <laughs> so did your father read any of your poetry? Because I know in one poem called Poetry, you yeah. say, quote, this is his father saying, I hear you putting all my business on the internet. <laughs> then he laughed, but nothing else was said. Yeah. Nah, he never read any of it. I mean, I, um, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't believe, maybe. But um, my father was, you know, that poem talks about him. I gave him a book. I gave him one of my books. Not this one, of course. Um, but I gave him one of my poetry collections. And he looked, he looked at it. He was like, ugh. Oh, all right, all right. And what he was interested in was the blurb. He was, that was really fascinating for him, what people had said about the book and my, bi my bio. And oh, yeah, that's good, that's good, that's good. Right, so, you know, and that was it. So. <laughs> yeah. Did you read poetry? Oh, okay. Poetry. When I give my father a copy of my book, he looks at the cover and says, that is you and Dennis, where is that? 
Ramkisun trays. He fans the pages with his thumb. I watch until he pauses near the center to draw his head back to fix his eye to read. Then another few lines before turning to the back and scanning the surface of the sentences there. The bio and the blurb are the things which make him smile. I don't think he ever read those poems. But somebody told him that I'd written about his travels in the spirit world to the Guinea coast, to China, in search of secret colors. And driving from the beach one day, he said, I hear you're putting all my business on the internet. Then he laughed, but nothing else was said. I love that, and I love the centering of our own lives. And you've talked um, about Caribbean being the center yeah. of storytelling, and you've said specifically, um, you've described the Caribbean as a microcosm for what it means to be human. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? We have our own equivalents in the Pacific. Yes, you know, um, I think islands, People that live on islands, they function a lot of times as microcosms for the, for the rest of the world because a lot of things that we experience and witness in the Caribbean, like migration, people moving in and out, different cultures blending, are the same things that we see in, in greater cities. But in the Caribbean, it's more intense and there's more at, risk, there's, there's more at stake, you know because we don't have the sort of economic infrastructure a lot of times. So things are edgy. There's an edginess to a Caribbean life. Um, but also it's a political sort of reclamation of existence. And it comes from, um, there's a St. Lucian poet called uh, Derek Walcott, who won the Nobel Prize in 1992. And he, he wrote a a book called um, Omaros, which is a, a Caribbean retelling of Ulysses. Is it Ulysses? No, of Homer, the, the, the epic, the Iliad of Homer. Um, and what he says in interviews is that he was, I was not trying to write, I wasn't trying to write a Caribbean Homer. I was trying to show that Homer's experience is an experience that we can also see in the Caribbean, that these things are universal, that the Caribbean is a microcosm for the rest of the world. Um, and also Earl Lovelace, who's a Trinidadian a novelist, who's one of my sort of uh, father figures, in an essay says um, a similar thing. He says that, you know, when I speak as a Caribbean person, you may think that I'm speaking from some, some sort of uh, the periphery of life, but no, I'm speaking from the very center of humanity, you know, and I think that's powerful, and I, I kind of work with those two ideas that, you know, the Caribbean is, this, is, is, an, is, a, is, a, is an epicenter of what it means to be human. It's, if you go there, you find that, yeah, as I was saying, you feel that you're living in the present time very much. It's probably similar here, actually. It's probably, people probably have that, you probably have that experience as well, that you're very much inhabiting a present you know, yeah. Well, I was when I couldn't get off Waiheke Island because the ferries <laughs> kept getting cancelled. But um, we have our own um, Tongan satirist and theorist called Epele Haofa, and he he um, 
he encouraged the use of the word Oceania mm. uh, instead of the Pacific Islands because the common uh, understanding when people talked about Pacific Islands were islands flung, yeah. scattered in a yeah. huge ocean. Yeah. And so he coined the term, it's our sea of islands, mm -hmm. where um, the pathways, the trade routes, the, journey, the journeying, um, the migration, was all part of our identity of belonging yes. and power. Um, so rather than being kind of this void in, you know, inside the Pacific mm -hmm. Rim, we were a center unto ourselves and it completely, yeah. Yeah. you know, it tipped everything. We, the periphery suddenly became the margin again. And I yeah. think even as a, as a writer, when you write about your own personal experience, especially those lost, um, yearned for histories, stories, the, the, the hidden ones, mm -hmm. the ones that you're ashamed to tell almost, yeah. um, we center ourselves in our own lives again. Yeah, and it, it reminds me of like one of my favorite poems by Derek Walcott is Love After Love. Oh, yeah. You know, and that final line to sit, mm -hmm. eat, yeah. feast on your life. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's very, um, you know, Kemal Braithwaite talks about that as well, that the, the unity is submarine. So the unity, might, the unity of the Caribbean might not be seen on the surface, but under the surface, it's all connected. The, the unity is submarine. You know, when I started um, sort of researching the, that sort of idea, the, the, the idea of fragmentation, because fragmentation is what you're talking about, this idea that the Caribbean and these islands are fragmented. It's a very colonial way of looking at the Caribbean. And actually, the Caribbean has more, the islands have more in common with each other than they have differences. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a lot of similarities musically, culturally, in our food, in the way we use language, in the history, you know, plantation slavery, all of these experiences make us quite a unified body, you know. But of course, it's not. Um, it's not uh, practical for colonialism to have so many islands together unified. Well, it's divide and <laughs> conquer, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I mentioned your mother before. Oh, yeah. And um, where is she in your poetry? Where is, and, and other members of your family, um, thinking of every time you go back to Trinidad, your brother's there, mm -hmm. you know, and how is that? worked out in your poetry, if at all? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know, if people, you know, every interview that I've, that I've done, um, I've kind of been asked, why isn't, you know, what about sonnets for your mom, you know? <laughs> what about sonnets for Janet? And the thing is that the people that are asking that don't know my work. They don't know that for, since I started publishing my poetry, my mother's been in every collection, dominating a lot of the poems. She's in every collection, she's in every book. Um, my mom died when she was 47. She died really young. She died in 1997. Um, very difficult uh, because I never lived with her. I, never, I was never able to call her mom or I had a really strange relationship with her. Very painful, unfulfilled, un, 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 yeah. I couldn't, you know, have the experience of having a mom with her, it's strange. Um, so because of that, she's a, she's a real mystery to me and she appears in all the work and it's, it's, a, it's a painful process 
and she's in all the work, and she's in every poem. She's in there. She's in this book. She appears in about two or three of the poems. But I haven't wanted to put just one collection with her in it. I prefer to, to leave her, be like an infiltration, infiltrating each book and coming out. And she's in every book, you know. She's the maternal fascia. Mm. Um, we've got four minutes left, and I just I did say we'd have time for questions. Um, has anyone got a question, or is anyone standing by a mic? Thank you. Kia ora, Anthony. Hi. Um, lovely to hear you speak. Um, yeah, it, it's, um, it's great to hear the multifaceted and rich aspects that inform your work and your identity. And it reminds me of the writer Ishmael Reed, and mm. I discovered him a couple of years ago and loved the book Mumbo Jumbo, and I wondered yeah. um, if he was one of your influences. And I just noticed the brogue shoes reference in, mm. your, po yeah. in your poem, and that um, I wondered if you had other influences like him that inspire you. Yeah, I mean, Ishmael Reed, of course, you know, mumbo-jumbo is a seminal work. And when I, was, um, when I was writing African Origins of UFOs, my first novel, I read a lot of Ishmael Reed for the language because I was trying to do something which was different with, with slang and black speech, black talk. And he was a he's a master there. So I, I sort of learned a lot from reading him. Um, but he wasn't a formative inspiration when I was growing up. I didn't, you know, I didn't really know his work. Um, Ted Jones, who was an American surrealist, African-American surrealist poet of the same sort of um, generation as Ishmael Reed, was a much more uh, influential figure for me. Amiri Baraka, huge, yeah, huge figure for me. Um, uh, gosh, uh, Kaufman. I forgot this first name. Jewish New Orleans African American poet was also a big influence. Surrealist poet. Uh, I was inspired by the Beats a lot. Beat writers, Ginsburg, um, William Burroughs, Ginsburg. I met Ginsburg. It was amazing. Yeah. So those were the kind of figures and Caribbean poets. But yeah. Thanks, Anthony. Anyone else? Yes. I can hear you, though. Yeah. Yeah, I'm Oh. Could we have the microphone, the standing microphone on, please? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I wondered, like, you've lived in the UK since the 1980s, and I wondered what your experience was of, like, how the UK has changed the, like, huge landscape of the art and literary world in the UK and how that's influenced your career and mm -hmm. your success over since you've been there. Yeah. It's a, good, it's a good question. When I started, uh, when I came to the UK in 1989, there were very few black British poets being published by anybody, you know. Um, 
it was very hard to find any sort of a center of black literature in the UK. It's very hard. I mean, there were people like Benjamin Zephaniah, Linton Kwesi Johnson, who were working. But beyond that, we weren't getting published. It just wasn't happening. And that, I saw that gradually change. And that started changing late. That started changing in early 2000s. It started gradually changing until now. It's great. It's, you know, it's better. I wouldn't say it's great, but it's a lot better. Uh, and a lot more black writers being published and winning prizes and things like that. But yeah, there was a, a time of wilderness in the 90s. It was, it was difficult. Um, and what people did, what black writers were doing, were doing a lot of spoken word events and a lot of slam poetry, and there was a whole rise of that because that was an outlet that we could have. Um, and then gradually it changed. Publishing opened up, uh, and we began to find more and more you know, black writers being published. So that's one of the more significant things that have changed. That's, yeah. But me, I, I was kind of, I've been at the beginning where there was very little and, you know, up until the point where, you know, being published by Bloomsbury and stuff like that. When I came, when I was in like 1989, 1990, it was not a, that was not a possibility. So that's a real change. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. We've actually run out of time. Is it a quick question? Okay, well, well Anthony will be at the yeah. author signing um, table, so please um, buy yourself a copy of uh, Sonnets for Albert. He will pop a poem in there, pop the signature, and um, please join me in thanking um, Anthony Joshua Joseph for spending his time. Thank you. Norera, tenakoto, tenakoto, tenakoto katoa. Thank you. Thank you.